Hello, and welcome to Trek in Time. This is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. We're going to be taking a look at each episode of Star Trek in chronological order. We're also going to take a look at what the world was like when the episode aired. Who is this we that I keep talking about? It's me, Sean Farrell. I write books. Some of it's sci-fi, some of it's for kids. And with me is my brother, Matthew. He's the tech guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Before we get into the episode, just a reminder, there are ways you can help support the show, which include doing what you're doing right now, watching or listening. You can also go to our website, trekintime.show, and there's a button there that you can press that allows you to throw some coins at us. We love dodging coins. <laughs> it's like a video game. And Matt, before we get into this current episode, which is our episode number 13, Sleeping Dogs, which is episode 14 of Enterprise, do you want to share any comments from previous episodes? Sure. Uh, we had one from Robotrav that made me laugh when I saw it. Man, I'm like, where's my trek in time? It's late. Then I realized I've been up since 3.30 this morning, and it's actually right on time. Hi, guys. <laughs> Sounds like RoboTrav is inadvertently (laughs) traveling through time in the wrong way. Yes. (laughs) Get to bed, Robo. Get to bed. But thanks for listening. We appreciate it. So today we're going to be talking about episode 14. This episode is titled Sleeping Dogs. It was written by Fred Decker, and he's an American screenwriter and film director. He is responsible for the cult classic horror comedy, Night of the Creeps. Do you remember that one, Matthew? I do remember that. He also did The Monster Squad, which was written with Shane Black, who is a very prolific screenwriter. And he is a contributor to House and Ricochet and also directed and co-wrote RoboCop 3. Which we all try to forget. Yes. (laughs) Still, not a good movie. An impressive career from Fred Decker. Yep. This episode was also directed by Les Lando, and he was a very prolific director within Star Trek. He worked on various franchises from 87 to 2002. So he covered everything from Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. This is the only episode of Enterprise that he directed. And I thought it was interesting that Lando got his start as an assistant director on the television series Dynasty. That's how early his his career started. He also worked with William Shatner as assistant director on T.J. Hooker. So oh, yeah. Hooker's a good cop. Don't yeah, forget right. that. Hmm. He also directed episodes for TV series such as Beverly Hills 90210, Sequest DSV. Do you remember Sequest? I do remember Sequest. Yeah. It was a show that had a little bit of promise, but they just squandered that immediately just drowned it in the bathtub. (laughs) He also worked on Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman Mantis, another show that had promise. It had promise. If only Fox would give a little bit more time to these shows as they just start to develop their voice. Mantis was one of those shows. I think that if it had been allowed a little bit more time, Mantis might be something that we still see today. I think it, it, it was a pretty cool concept. He also worked on Sliders, Jag, and Dark Angel. I like Dark Angel. That was a yeah. fun show. So 
A little bit of background on this episode. It's referred to as Sleeping Dogs, and they were being Shakespearean in naming it that. It's a reference to Shakespeare's Henry IV Part Two, Let Sleeping Dogs Lie. I think that's about the end of any relationship to Shakespeare that this episode has. Only the title. (laughs) (laughs) So this episode aired on January 30th, 2002. It had six and a half million viewers, so up a little bit from the previous week. And the world that this landed in, well, let me remind you. (laughs) It's a nickel. How you remind me by Nickelback, heaven help us, still the number one song. It's out there. We just can't get enough of that power ballad. And the movie that was topping the box office was still Black Hawk Down. It pulled in another 17 million. And television viewers this week were tuning in to watch a little watched program called the Super Bowl. It was Super Bowl 36, if I read my Roman numerals correctly, which aired on Fox and pulled in a paltry 86 million viewers in the U.S. And of it's course, that's nobody, just the U.S. I, I know that it's, it's a struggle for everybody yeah. out there to make ends meet. And when Fox is trying to get those ad dollars, gosh, won't people please tune in and support the NFL. And headlines this day of January 30th, 2002, were all about Bush's State of the Union. This, of course, was the first State of the Union address after 9-11. And so guess what? Bush's focus was entirely on terrorism, saying that a secure U.S. is the top priority. This is also the State of the Union address that famously created the axis of evil of Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. Also in the headlines, a continuing look into Enron, which it turned out was still shredding documents even as the investigations by Congress were beginning. We, of course, are you shocked by this though? We brought up Enron (laughs) in the headlines a few episodes ago, talking about how it went from stock market darling to basically deflating almost overnight because of mass corruption and mismanagement. And I do remember that it, I do remember when this story broke that the investigations were beginning and it turned out that they had a third party shredding company still taking documents and shredding them as the investigation and the requests for those documents was starting up. So this episode, Sleeping Dogs, Matt, you want to give us a quick synopsis? Sure. Subcommander to Paul, Lieutenant Reed and Ensign Sato are stranded on a Klingon vessel sinking into a gas giant. Captain Archer tries to convince a captured Klingon to help before the away team is crushed by the intense pressure of the planet's atmosphere. So this story takes place in the fall of 2151. Again, as you might remember from last week, the next episode with a hard date is a few episodes away, and that will be a date in November of 2151. So this episode probably takes place somewhere in October, which makes me think they should have made it a Halloween episode. No, they shouldn't have done that. (laughs) So the Enterprise has dropped out of warp near a gas giant and almost immediately the crew detects an unexpected power signature and biosigns in the lower atmosphere. And T'Pol, Reed, and Sato are tasked with investigating the ship. And right off the bat, 
they show a profile of the ship and T'Pol is asked, do you recognize this? And she's like, no, I've never seen that before. And It's the most recognizable Klingon ship you've ever it's, seen. It's the, it is a <laughs> class of vessel, which later on, they refer to it by class name from the Vulcan database. Yes. So either T'Pol is kind of a lazy Vulcan, <laughs> or, and I think this might actually be uh, closer to the truth, I believe that this episode, as originally written, wasn't going to be the Klingons. It wasn't. And that's the rub. I think that they changed some lines and they didn't change others. And right off the bat, I'm going to throw this out to you, Matt. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Would you have appreciated this being another species? A hundred percent. And what's funny is like I was looking in the background in this, and I think it was Brandon Braga said, he kind of regretted that this was the Klingons because they did the Klingons one too many times in the first season. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. You yeah. didn't need to do that. There was no reason to go Klingons on this. Yeah. I'm going to go back to something we talked about in previous episodes. They introduced the idea that the Nausicans could be a yes. recurring alien species that they could be showing. And wouldn't it have been interesting here again, like we've said previously, to use the Nausicans and explore the Nausicaan philosophy a little bit. Mm -hmm. One of the things that comes out, spoilers, at the end of the episode, it revolves around Archer figuring out how to think like a Klingon, how to communicate to a Klingon in a way that a Klingon is going to understand and respond to. Could have told the same story with a different species. It almost felt to me like this episode, they were taking a shortcut to viewer understanding. And I don't feel like it was from a place of laziness. I almost feel like it was more of a pace of fear of not knowing how to tell a story without these shortcuts. I I don't, I agree with you. I think the shortcut was the Klingons because everybody knows the Klingons. But if you're a Star Trek fan, you also know the Nausicans. You also know the Orions, which it could have been both very aggressive species just like the clans so you could you could have used your shortcut with two completely different species and then it might be a little more believable that right she wouldn't recognize one of the most iconic klingon ships you've ever seen in your life yeah so to paul reed and sato are <laughs> sent down in a shuttle to investigate i i want to jump backward a little bit there was i think a very nice scene between reed and sato Yes. This is an episode similar to last week's episode. Sato, I feel like in these two episodes, is being used well. I've complained in previous episodes that there's just a question mark over why is she being dealt with the way she is. Most famously, she's given the utmost important task of figuring out what Reed's favorite food was in a previous episode. I hated that storyline. The answer is pineapple, by the way. And in this one, she's shown weapons training, which I really liked that that was the focus of the scene with her and Reed. Reed trying to give her tips about how to use a phaser pistol, which is not what she's accustomed to. And they have an interesting discussion of him saying, this is not something where you have to lead the beam. This is you point and shoot and it hits what you're aiming at. And he's giving her some tips. And I thought that was just really cool. It was just a nice moment between them. 
And Reed is also struggling with a cold. And I thought that that was a nice little story element of showing him with a head cold. And he's just like, how can I possibly have a head cold? A nice scene with Flock saying like these things can hibernate in little hard to see spots and you open up a box and suddenly you've got a head full of germs. So I liked all of that. Can I comment on those two things? Yeah. I love that opening scene because it was a great character development between the two of them. It was also a nice to show that Reed is kind of helping to train the the staff the larger to be better crew. with their weapons. Yeah, uh, It's kind of showing them that everybody has to be on their toes because they're in a dangerous territory, uh, which I liked. Um, the part about the cold, though, I couldn't have hated this that plot line anymore, Sean. <laughs> it had no impact on the story in the slightest, and it like didn't affect the plot, and it didn't affect any of the other storylines. It didn't tie in at all. It was like, by the end of the episode, I was like, why the hell did he have a cold? Why? It's like Chekhov's gun. If he's, if you're going to tell me and spend five minutes talking about this man's cold, it better have some impact on the story or the plot, please. And it didn't. And it's like, I so just like Chekhov's gun. If, if somebody has a cold, it better go off. It's Chekhov's cold. It yeah. didn't go off. And I was very disappointed by that. I agree. The, the one point where I thought the cold was going to have an impact was yeah. he starts to get dizzy. Yes. And he burns himself. I yes. thought he was going to become injured to the point where he would be somewhat incapacitated. I thought I was, was thinking be, I was thinking it was going to be his head cold was going to protect him from what was ever on the ship that was making people sick. Right. You know, it's like you could see it going down that path. I'm getting ahead in the plot, but yeah. the Klingons on board the ship are sick. And I thought when they opened their visors when they go on board the ship, I was like, Oh, I wonder if his cold's going to protect him from whatever's on board the right. what's going on. Yeah, I think that the cold served only one purpose, which was to allow for two jokes. It was comic relief. Yeah. And the first joke was when they get to the Klingon ship and they open up their visors and Sato and T'Pol are both like that odor. And Mm -hmm. he's like, what odor? I don't smell a thing. And then at the end, again, there's a callback to that joke where do you smell that? Nothing. And insert sad trombones as needed, I think. <laughs> yep. So they arrive on the Klingon vessel, which is called the Samra, and they discover that there are Klingons who are basically all dying on the ship. And it's because of a carbon dioxide-based neurotoxin in their system. They discover one surviving Klingon crew member who comes out of what looks like a fridge of some sort. Yes. And this uh, Bukha is running around on the ship and manages to steal their shuttle pod. I thought that this little chase, little space chase, was actually kind of cool where she manages to get away in their shuttle pod and then the Enterprise has to chase the shuttle pod down and capture it. And then they have to pull it aboard and with a security team, capture a Klingon out of the shuttle pod. And it's this sort of like butt kicking that she gives a couple of security officers before she's managed to be stunned. Did you did you like that sequence, that turn of events? I did. The only part I didn't like was... Reed is the head of security. And in almost every episode where he's security man, 
he gets taken down within like a blink of an eye. Right. And it's like, if he's the head of security, he'd be able to hold himself against a, a foe. At least that's what I would expect. And we've never seen him do that. He always gets taken out way too quick. And for this, she jumps out of the ceiling at him and knocks him down and runs down a hallway and steals the shuttle. Yeah. And it was like, oh, come on. You couldn't have had him like hold his own for a couple of seconds, like have like a little repartee, like fighting back and forth. And then she manages to best him because she's just so much stronger than he is or something like that. But it was just such a wimpy fight and he just went down so quick. Yeah. It was just, come on, come on. It felt very much like it was, it was done that way for time. Like yes. they would just need to get her off that ship. They just need yeah. to strand the, the the crew members on this Klingon vessel. And I agree with you. It just didn't strike me as the best handling of the character of Reed. And again, he, you've given him a cold. You've made that claim that he's trying to push through it, to macho up through it, and to not be taken down by a cold. So he was given an injection by Flocks. If it had been set up that, okay, I'm giving you this injection, it's going to mask the symptoms, but you might experience some lightheadedness, some dizziness, you might like give some foreshadowing to what it could mm-hmm. do and then make that the element that takes him out of that fight. If he gets into the fight and she's able to clock him and he's suffering through a low-grade concussion, for the rest of the episode, as well as the side effect of the medicine he's been given. You could also make that a a turning point for him of being like, I should have never come on this mission. I jeopardized your safety. Yes. I can't live with myself. That will never happen again. Yes. It's like you could have to be a learning lesson. Yeah, and they have a couple of moments which are, that would have been a very nice parallel with what Sato's going through because Sato is having conversations with T'Pol and making the case that, I know that I've in the past been hesitant to do these things. I'm ready. I want to do these things. I'm trying hard to become an active participating member of the crew doing my job well and helping the crew. Yep. I think that if he was having the exact opposite experience of I suddenly realize I'm a detriment. I should yes. and like you said if he had said like I've put myself into a position because I wasn't ready to fight her off. I'm now hurting you and you're distracted by needing to take care of me while also trying to save the ship. Yep. So it could have been a very nice parallel between the two of them having the exact opposite experience of her trying to grow into that role and him realizing that he's not as strong as he hoped he was, he was at the beginning. So they've got these discoveries. There's a neurotoxin on board. I think that one of the elements of being on this Klingon ship and them discovering all of these things very quickly. And then the crew member from the Klingon vessel who's now in sick bay with flocks and she's strapped to a table and every time they wake her up, she just yells at them. Yeah. Um, I think they got a lot of the setup out of the way very quickly. And I appreciated that because then the rest of it, it's not about them finding other members of the Klingon crew hiding in places. They're not fighting in the hallways and doing stuff like that. They're literally just trying to figure out how to save this ship because the ship is sinking into the atmosphere of this giant gas planet and the pressure is building and the ship is going to buckle. They know it will not survive if it goes much further. They've also reached a point where the Enterprise cannot get to them. Of course, this is the point where you might say, transporters Mm -hmm. 
I don't recall anybody on the Enterprise saying the words transporters. They alluded to it, but it was very sloppy. Because like, not to get too ahead, but like they do end up trying to take the Enterprise down to get to the ship. And it was implied they were trying to get close enough to get a solid reading to be able to transport them off. Right. But they weren't able to do it because the Enterprise was starting to buckle under the pressure and had to fly off. So they were implying, because they had they had set up that there was some kind of radio interference that was shutting down communications. And they were kind of like loosely implying that it was also impacting their sensors and their transporter functionality. But they never explicitly said any of it. You mm-hmm. had to kind of read between the lines to understand what was going on. And to me, that was like super sloppy storytelling. It was like right. you could have been a little more explicit there. So one of the things that Buka managed to do when she stole the shuttle pod before she was captured, she sent out a distress signal. And so the Enterprise is operating knowing that not only do they have the pressure cooker of the crew members who are on the vessel that is sinking deeper into the gas giant atmosphere, they know that Klingons will likely show up and then they'll have to deal with that as well. So aboard the vessel, Sato plays again another her role here does make sense she is deciphering the command panels on the various computer systems she's also deciphering the captain's log which reveals that the captain had been getting sick along with other members of the crew after having fight having a fight with a Zarentine, which we never see the Zarentine. We don't know who they are, but the Klingons had fought the Zarentine. And then in the expectation that the Zarentine might show up again in bigger numbers, hid in the gas giant atmosphere. But then they started to become sick. So this confluence of these two things has put the ship where it is. This message also includes a specific reference to what is wrong with the ship. The port fusion injector is broken. So now they know what they need to look for to try and fix the ship, it would be made much easier if the Klingon aboard the Enterprise would help give them any sort of suggestions about how to go about doing this. But she is refusing to do it, thinking that the Enterprise is responsible for the illness. One of the elements of using the Klingons, the shorthand that comes with that is the audience already knows how a Klingon is going to behave, what they are going to claim, what they're going to be like. And this is where in this episode in particular, I wish they had gone with a different species because as an audience member, I knew how they would crack the shell of the Klingon in sickbay the moment they captured her. Mm -hmm. It was obvious from the very beginning what the key to that puzzle is going to be. It is going to be manipulating her understanding of honor. And when they are discussing with her in sickbay, Phlox has figured out where the toxin came from. It's come from Zarentine Ale, which they stole during a raid on a Zarentine base. The Klingon in sickbay boldly brags about the fact that we went, we attacked their base, we took what we wanted, and then we all celebrated with the Zarentine Ale. Seems like the Zarentine, anticipating that Klingons might show up, had intentionally poisoned mm-hmm. some food stuff in the hopes that it would have this effect. I got to tell you, the Zarentines sound kind of conniving, 
And I yeah. wish it had been a Xerentine in the sick bay. Yes. That sounds like it's, it's an interesting idea of what if this had been a vessel where they had found somebody who they didn't quite understand, they didn't have any information on, the Vulcans don't have any information on, and you really have to sort of have an actual uh, cat and mouse game with the philosophy of a person who's willing to poison food in order to hopefully, if somebody comes and steals this, it will then hurt them. So the Xerentine are kind of slow motion winning this fight with the Klingons just by the fact that they've poisoned this stuff. But they, Phlox and Archer are having difficulty convincing this Klingon that that is in fact what has happened. She does not believe them that this is what's happened. Trip is giving Archer a lot of advice in this episode about you got to think like a Klingon. We keep running into these people. Archer says we keep running into them and every time we run into them, they want to kill us. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he does a little bit of research. He's reading of the 900 pages in the Vulcan database about Klingons. He stumbles upon the one page that mentions death before dishonor. Yeah. I can see you're shaking your head. Listeners, if you're listening to this without video, you can't see the disappointment in Matt's face. Matt, what are you thinking? It's just so, it was so, this goes back to sloppy storytelling, leaning onto a species that everybody knows there's a shorthand. We already know what the answer is going to be before they even get to it. And it's just that he's 900 pages. Oh, he just stumbles around one right page at the right time that tells him the one sentence that he needed to know to crack the code. It was so, it's just, it was just lazy storytelling. I did not like it at all. Yeah. Completely agree. To cut to the chase, Archer then goes back to the sick bay and basically says to Baka, all right, you're willing to die, but what kind of honor is there in a death where you are letting your crew die from poison and a ship getting crushed in the atmosphere of this planet? There's no mm-hmm. honor in any of those deaths. And you will live because we've given you the cure. So you will go back to your people and you will have to carry that dishonor with you. As far as interactions with Klingons go, that's not a bad, you know, honor argument to make. It's, you know, Picard in dealing with the Klingons and in the Deep Space Nine storylines around the Klingons. That kind of logic is used to get Klingons to act certain ways all the time. But like you've said, it is a shorthand that is so obvious from the very beginning. The moment she says, you did this to me, you poisoned my crew. Her argument about that makes zero sense. Nothing. If If you stop and you look at the logic of what she is saying, she is saying, I've woken up, I, I snuck out of some sort of refrigerator unit, I found humans on my ship that were not there when all of the crew was starting to get sick. The humans were not there when the captain took us into the atmosphere of the planet. The humans were not there when a part of our ship broke and we couldn't leave the atmosphere and we started sinking deeper into the atmosphere. The humans were not there at any of those points, but now the humans are. And they're depicting a person who is so stupid as to immediately say, well, since you're here, you must have done all of those things. 
Yeah. It does not make any sense. Klingons are smarter than this. So her entire argument is nonsensical from the beginning. So the fact that their solution is to figure out how to use Klingon thinking to get the Klingon to respond properly to what's going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. is not only so glaringly obvious from the very beginning, but it's set up with bad premises in the storytelling. Again, like you said, it's sloppy, it's sloppy storytelling. storytelling. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, I think we've beaten that Klingon horse long enough. <laughs> Archer convinces her by pointing out the dishonor that she would carry with her if she allows everything to to move forward without helping them. So now she is willing to help and they are going to take a reinforced shuttlecraft and try to get to the ship. Meanwhile, on the Klingon vessel, they are scrambling trying to use the, when they first arrived on the ship and Sato is reading decoding Klingon computer panels and points out, oh, this must be weapons because there's a reference to disruptors and photon torpedoes. And, and Reed gets all excited. Reed gets very excited. <laughs> photon torpedoes, torpedoes. What, what are those? <laughs> and it's one of those moments that I like it when they wrestle with philosophy and Starfleet thinking of the future. That's when this feels most Star Trek to me. It mm-hmm. does not feel like Star Trek to me just because they reference photon torpedoes. Mm-hmm. I don't get excited about, oh, goody, photon torpedoes. I get excited when the characters are like, why don't we have something like a prime directive? Yeah. So here is Reed getting super excited at the beginning of the episode. Ooh, what's a photon torpedo? Now they are trying to use those torpedoes. I have no problem with the way they're trying to use them. I had a problem with the way they were introduced. Mm-hmm. So they're using these torpedoes. They are firing them below the ship and they are using the shockwave to try and lift the ship. And this was a very anticlimactic, almost callback. This episode feels almost like it's pirated from other Star Trek stories. Mm -hmm. This has an element to it that is a little bit like the Galileo 7 episode where you have Spock and Scotty and a couple of other crewmen in a shuttlecraft and they are trapped on a planet and the enterprise is being called away and cannot find them. And they manage to get, they are being attacked by very primitive people on this planet. They manage to take off in their damaged shuttlecraft and are flying in a final orbit around the planet. And Spock in a moment of logically deciding it's time to be desperate ejects the remaining fuel and ignites it behind the shuttlecraft, which effectively, as Scotty says in that moment, is like sending up a flare. The Enterprise is leaving the system, but in looking with the sensors back toward the planet, sees the shuttlecraft trail, turns around immediately and is able to get back in time to rescue the, the crew before their shuttlecraft crashes back on the planet. This episode of Enterprise feels like they like copy pasted that desperate a, a desperate attempt to well how do we do this these photon torpedoes aren't doing the trick when we fire one or two of them it's just not enough and sato says shoot them all shoot yeah. them all at once and everybody with her looks at each other to paul looks at reed and reed looks at to paul and they both look at sato and they nobody can believe what's being suggested well of course you fire 
Of course, yeah. you fire all six. That's your only means of lifting the ship. Well, in that moment, I think you're downplaying a little bit of they have basically said we don't think the ship can take the structural pressure of that much explosion. And for the scaredy cat of the crew to go launch all six, that's why they were like looking at Sato because it's like they couldn't believe that Sato was making the suggestion of taking such a huge risk when she's usually the one that's being very conservative and scared. Yeah, so I, get, like, I get all I, of that, I, but I, think, I felt like it was, I, but I still feel like the moment itself is just like, of course that's where you were headed. This episode yes, it, felt like it was full of moments, of course this is where you were headed. Yeah, of course it's where they were he- headed, but I'm giving them a little, um, even though there's so much sloppy storytelling here, there is some nice Sato stuff in the yes. entire episode. And I thought for her plot line, where that ended up in that scene. I thought it was pretty good because it was like her taking command almost and making the gutsy call when she normally would not have done that. It was like a nice turning port and being bold. So it was like, it was a nice growth element for her. So I thought it paid off on her storyline pretty well. Mm -hmm. On the whole though, I'm with you of like, it was like, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. See what you're doing here. Yep. So they end up shooting the remaining torpedoes all at once. They do manage to get a little bit of lift to the ship, which will temporarily uh, stall the inevitable. But most importantly, the shockwave of the explosion gives Archer a bead on where the ship is. Archer is currently flying in with Buka, and when he registers where the explosion has taken place, he's able to fly toward it, finds the vessel, and they are able to get aboard, and with the help of Buka, Restabilize the ship's engines and begin the process of getting them out of the the atmosphere of this planet. There's a very yada 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 moment where it's like they must at some point give the Klingon crew the antidote to the poison mm-hmm. because they never really show it or really discuss it much. But it's suddenly okay. The Klingons are back in control of their own ship. Yep. Archer and the away team are back aboard the Enterprise. Everybody's going to go their separate ways. The Enterprise dealt very briefly with the, uh, there's a couple of Klingon ships about 15 minutes away. We never see them show up. We never see them become a real threat. But the threat that they do deal with at the very end of the episode is that now that the captain of the Klingon ship is back in command and his ship is now working again, he immediately tells Archer, okay, surrender your vessel. And effectively is acting like you disrespected my vessel, you disrespected my crew, you did all these things that were bad, so we are going to attack you. And Archer has to once again think like a Klingon and boldly says, and this is a moment where I know what they were going for, but again, it just felt like the logic of that moment, the captain of that Klingon vessel would not, it just didn't feel like that was organic to the story or the moment the Klingon might have said something very saber saber rattling along the lines of um, if you think I owe you a debt of thanks you're not going to get thanks from me if I ever see you in this sector again don't expect me to be nice like it could have been any sort of thing to say like mm-hmm. like basically a Klingon you know get out of here otherwise we're going to kick your ass but Mm -hmm. not this actual direct threat of i am demanding you surrender your vessel 
they set that up because what they want is to have Archer again demonstrate he's beginning to be able to think like a Klingon. I get what they were going for. I do sort of like his attitude in this scene where he very strongly just says, go ahead, take one shot. I will blow your ship back to where I found it. And does it in a way without blinking, without any hesitation of like, it's basically like, look, I'm sick of your shit. Every time I run into you guys, you act like assholes and I'm sick of it. So go you ahead, could, you please could just, just take a shot. You could have had that same interaction, like what you were just suggesting of him saying, I'm not, if you expect a thanks, you're not going to get it. If I see you again, we're probably going to go, go at it and have Archer basically go, uh, next time, maybe don't get yourself stuck in a gas giant and then yeah. cut off the communications. Like he could have done something that would just have like been like, yeah. F you right back to them. Yeah. Which could have had the same impact. Or even but, a very, you know, an even more aggressive, like what makes you think I'm in, I'm fearful of a captain who gets his own crew yes. poisoned and then strands them in the gas giant atmosphere. And like, yeah. you think you're scary and yeah. communication and fly away. Yeah. That would have had, that would have had the same moment without it being, uh, quite so corny corny yeah i think corny is is the right word so the very final uh scene of the episode once again thank goodness we're back in the decon room everybody lube up everybody lube up everybody sitting around in their underwear (laughs) everybody get their sweat on in the sauna because we got to make sure you got no microbes on you from that klingon vessel and they are sitting in the decon chamber and it suddenly becomes a like they're super relaxed like i I got what they were going for but i didn't know why they were trying to get there showing the crew the away team like they were they were it was a very stressful situation they were probably sore and it was a great calming relaxing odor free for that odor joke um i kind of got what they were going for the thing in this scene, Sean, that drove me batty was Reed's when he cold said, is gone. Well, okay, that that's the second thing. The main <laughs> thing was Flock says, Your decon's done. You guys are good. Yeah. And they basically um both Sato and Reed kind of look at T'Pol and be like, We want more time in here. Yeah. And T'Pol lies. Yeah. She lies. What do Vulcans not do? Yeah. <laughs> It was like there was that wonderful moment on the uh, that 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 one episode with the little kids playing hide and go seek, and the kid says, "Have you seen yeah. Lucy and whatever her name was?" Yeah. And she and says, DePaul, "I don't know which one is Lucy." Correct, and I, it's like she's bending the truth by you know leaving something out of a mission. She's not lying, yeah, and she's helping the little girl. This was just she just out and out lied like we need more time you know kind of a thing like i think we need another pass we're worried about you know we could still be contaminated with something it was she says i have a headache yeah yeah, it was it was like come on she would never do that it's like get get clever like what could she do that would bend the truth just enough yeah you know she could have said something about um reed's cold or you know could we just have a little more time because we're concerned about reed's cold that we might have which would have actually then tied the cold into having a plot point Bingo. <laughs> so it, that that to me was just the, the ending. Just to get to the what didn't work for me on this entire episode was the storytelling was really sloppy and it was all nostalgia based. Yeah. Where the the last episode we just talked about, 
the Dr. Flock's Dear Doctor storyline, which we thought the writing was spectacular on, this is like you couldn't have gone in a more opposite direction. I thought the storytelling was all nostalgia-based, very sloppy, and just taking shortcuts wherever they could. They were trying to do too much with too many characters, and so everything got it kind of shortchanged. Setting up plot lines with the colds and not paying them off, it's like there's just so many different yeah. things that were problematic on this episode. And what kills me is reading on, but the, the, the writer said one of his favorite characters to write for is Sato, and that was the only storyline in the entire show that I thought worked was yeah. her character development. So I'm glad you like to write for Sato, but uh, you kind of yeah. phoned everything else in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they end up with their spa moment. They're all super relaxed and Reed is feeling pretty groovy and we get to see him with his shirt off. So check that off your bucket list. And uh, and that's the episode. So Matt's already shared his, you know, like what he thought didn't work. I'm, I'm in complete agreement with all of his bullet points. Um, there was, there was a story here that I think would have made a really compelling episode, mm-hmm. but on the whole, I felt like even with the phoned in moments and the sloppiness, I didn't feel like this was the worst episode we've seen up to this point. Oh no. Oh, definitely not. I feel like <laughs> this episode has the advantage of now this is episode 14. These episodes are now feeling like they kind of know what they're doing as opposed to episodes like two, three, four. At this point, I'm feeling like, okay, this isn't the best episode, but it's not the worst. And I enjoyed watching it. So yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hate it. I felt pretty good at the end. It was kind of like a popcorn entertainment. Yeah. There was, there's no meat on the bones, but I kind of enjoyed it while I was watching it. Right. So, Matt, I know you wanted to take a closer look at something that was story-related. You want to get yeah. into that? Yeah. Part of the reason I, I picked this was partly because of the what didn't work in this episode. Um, I want to t- the, the writer, when he said he came up with a plot line for this episode, the, the Kursk submarine disaster had happened in the year 2000, like just the year before the show was made. And it was a Russian submarine that basically sank and I, I remember when this happened, it was all over the news. Yeah. This Ru- Russian submarine sank in a naval exercise. So they were doing a naval exercise. It sank and there was errors with like its emergency beacon not going off properly. So they didn't know it was missing and sunk at the bottom of the sea until it was like a number of days had gone by. And then the Russians were not asking for help and didn't have the proper equipment to go get the submarine and try to get rescue the survivors. Mm-hmm. You had other countries trying to come to the rescue and offering support to try to come in it. And the Russians were like, no, we're good. Yeah. And all I remember the Russians' in- first response was, what submarine? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they did all this awful stuff and just like delaying and delaying and delaying. And guess what? Everybody on the on the Kursk submarine died. So 118 personnel died aboard this disaster that probably could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into too much about politics and Putin, but like he had press conferences where he was just downplaying all of this and mm-hmm. he was like basically on vacation and didn't stop his vacation. It's no big deal. And it's like you have 118 servicemen that could be dying and you could be right. rescuing and you're trying to show strength and in showing strength of the Russian military and we've nothing to see here. It's like you, yeah. you let almost 120 people die. So that was one of the inspirations of the episode. 
And the reason I wanted to kind of talk about that was an, if that's your inspiration of having basically submariners stuck on a sinking vessel that's getting crushed, there's another movie that came to mind called Das Boot, mm-hmm. which is an incredible German movie that came out in the early 1980s from Wolfgang Peterson. He directed it. If you want to watch a taut, edge of your seat, oh my God, yeah. movie. It's about a U-boat in World War II that basically is playing a cat and mouse game, ends up getting kind of semi-sunk, and it's stuck on the bottom of the ocean. Just the the cat and mouse of like waiting for the enemy to get by, and the entire movie is from the perspective of the submarine. So you never see the enemy ships. You 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 hear the depth charges going off and this cat and mouse of like not knowing what's happening outside and the ship getting almost crushed because you're going too low and it's just edge of your seat movie making if this was basically his inspiration that cursed disaster which is very das boot like yeah why would you not emulate that to create a tense episode because it should have been tense with them on this sinking ship but there was no tension in the entire episode you you even referenced the um the two Klingon ships coming in, that didn't happen until the very end of the episode. There was a hint that, oh, a a call went out, but the next time we hear about the ships coming in is right at the end, and it didn't matter at all. So it's like, there were all these points of trying to create tension, and there was zero tension. And I would make an argument for, the episode would have been better if they had done less. So like, what if the episode was only told from Sato, Reed, and uh, to Paul's point of view? You're on the ship with them the entire time. You don't know what the Enterprise is doing. Yeah, They're sinking and they have no way to communicate. They don't know what's going on and they're trying to figure things out. Instead of that woman getting their shuttle and going off the Enterprise, she's on there with them. They have a fight. They tie her up. They're trying to convince her to help them or they're all going to die. And they start doing the thing where they're exploding the the torpedoes to slow their descent to give the Enterprise more time to get them. They They let off their last basically depth charge and it's like it's now or never this is either going to work or it's not and it's like is it are they going to get to us and then you hear the ka-chunk of this of the shuttle docking right because they were able to keep themselves afloat long enough it's like you could have created such incredible tension in an episode and had amazing character development with like yep. sato kind of taking charge and really becoming a, a a character of action instead of being a fear yeah insane or do the opposite where your crew goes down and then you lose communication. It's sinking and it's crushing. And it's all from the Enterprise's perspective of the sensors of like another compartment just crushed on there. We got, it's like, yeah, we, we got to get down there. It's like, what are they doing? Oh, they're, they're setting off explosions. They're keeping themselves up. It's like you could have had it from just their perspective. Right. The, the lack of knowledge would have created so much tension. I agree I, with your, your uh, first. I, I like both those ideas. I really like the first one more. I think that you end up with if, they had had the experience of ha- of finding the the live Klingon who attacks them. In that attack, she might have managed to keep herself hidden long enough to be able to sabotage their equipment, maybe mm-hmm. destroying the universal translator. Then you put Sato in the position of being the only person yep. there who can communicate with this Klingon, trying to convince this Klingon, we're here to help. We're not here to hurt you. You could have had elements of getting trapped in the ship with that Klingon. So Sato and that Klingon might have been in a place together where they were trapped and 
all of the stuff with Reed and Paul is happening separately as they're trying to keep the ship afloat effectively. And there could have also been an element of partway through, they might have been saying things like, where is the Enterprise? What is happening? And then mm-hmm. there could have been some kind of signal where they managed to get sensors working in a sw- small way and they detect that above them are two or three Klingon birds of prey. So now they're like, okay, the Klingons are here. Did they possibly chase off the Enterprise? Did they destroy the Enterprise? What is happening? What has happened to our ship? Yep. And you put all of that tension then, like you said, into the tin can that is getting crushed slowly as it falls into the atmosphere. I think that would immediately have about 100 times the tension. Yeah. And then you could also have the other element of, okay, we've just described everything of, of what if it was kept with the Klingons. What if it was a completely different species? Yep. Where we don't know the thinking. We don't know how are you going to crack the thinking of this, of this person who's on the vessel saying, you did this to us. You are attacking us. You're hurting us. How does Sato crack that? We know with the Klingons it's going to be honor. Yep. But here it would be then one more element to add to the tension. If you are dealing with a species, they don't know very well. So that's a lot of uh, wishful <laughs> thinking on our part. We just yes. script doctored the hell out of that episode. Yes, we did. We'll find out if we're going to have to do that again next time when we watch The Shadows of Pajem. Matt, any predictions about what The Shadows of Pajem is about? I bet they're on Pajem and there's some shadows getting cast. Mm. That sounds compelling already. Mm. Closing question to the listeners and viewers. What would you have done with Reed's Cold? How would you have... (laughs) How would you have saved that as a plot element for this episode to really make it a critical, a critical piece? Let us know in the comments or you can find the contact information in the podcast description. Quick reminder, you can directly support the podcast by visiting trekintime.show. There's a button there that will lead you to the cookie jar that you can throw some coins in. And Matt, is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? What do you got uh, going just, on? Uh, check out, uh, I have another channel called Vice Versa that I do with Ricky Roy. We broadcast live on YouTube every Thursday afternoon. Uh, jump in, check us out. As for me, as usual, my website, seanfarrell.com, has information about my books. And you can look for my books at any bookstore. Pick your favorite one and ask for them by name or by my name. Please let us know if you have any comments, corrections. Please reach out. If you realize that we said to Paul when we meant Sato, or we said Sato when we meant Reed, or we said Reed when we meant to Paul, let us know. We get confused. There's a lot of names. So many characters. (laughs) This is hard. Yeah, this is hard stuff. You can find the contact information in the podcast notes. You can leave a comment directly below the YouTube video. Please remember... The easiest ways for you to help us are to subscribe, to like the episode, and share it widely with friends and strangers. Remember, a stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet. And do come back next time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you later.